everybody to Bethany Church. Good morning. How are you doing? Awesome. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Derek Brocky, and today we're going to be continuing on in our series called Summer on the Mount. This is a time where we have committed as a church to go through the Sermon on the Mount using our summer. And as we review each week, the heart of Jesus' purpose in this sermon is to give his disciples a vision for what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. What does it look like to live righteously within the kingdom of God? There's a type of righteousness, Jesus says, that is on display, it's public, it's visible for everybody to see, it is, uh, it is within the bounds of our comforts, and this is the type of righteousness, Jesus says, that is opposed to the righteousness he's calling us to. That's the opposite of what it means to live within the framework of the kingdom. We've been seeing how over the last couple weeks, even in our practice of personal piety, we look at our motivations. Why is it that we do the things that we do? Why is it that we practice the righteousness that we practice? Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a couple contexts that I want us to keep in mind in order for us to get the full impact of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as our passage for today, which is the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you were here last week, Melanie led us through a prayer using the Lord's Prayer as a foundation, and after I saw that, I thought maybe I don't need to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. It was pretty amazing, but I figured I'd do it anyways, so... Here we go. Uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the first few chapters of Matthew. Um, not quite Matthew 6 yet. Matthew has intentionally structured his gospel so that he's displaying Jesus walking out the life of Israel as the true Israel, but he's doing it perfectly. There are multiple parallels that we can see as Matthew begins his gospel. First, we see in Matthew 2, 16 through 18, that Jesus flees a psychotic and genocidal ruler just like Moses had to flee a psychotic and genocidal ruler in Pharaoh. Next, Jesus is baptized by John. And as Israel comes out of Egypt, uh, they also pass through the Red Sea. In Matthew's narrative, Jesus comes up out of Egypt, and he is immediately baptized. Then, from their baptisms, Jesus goes straight into the wilderness. Israel passes through the Red Sea and goes straight into the wilderness. And they both go through a time of testing and trial. But Jesus succeeds in his time of testing and trial, where, where Israel failed. Jesus is able to overcome the evil one. Both Israel and Jesus are called God's son as well in Exodus 22, uh, 4, 22 through 23 and Matthew 3, 16 through 17. Now, after Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he goes up onto the mountain. And this is meant to mirror or parallel Moses going up onto Mount Sinai. Jesus goes up to give the law of the new covenant Moses went up on the, law, uh, on the mountain to receive the law of the Old Covenant. In, in essence, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is establishing righteousness within the New Covenant, whereas Moses going up on the mountain was establishing righteousness in the Old Covenant. In addition, Matthew's overall context, uh, to Matthew's overall context, the Lord's Prayer is also particularly important within the context of the Sermon on the Mount specifically. If you remember my message from probably a couple months ago now, I talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is structured as what's called a chiasm. A chiasm is where the thing that's in the very middle is what, what receives the most emphasis and is the most important point. So we see that the beginning and the end of Matthew parallel each other. Jesus creates a vision for what it looks like to live in the kingdom. At the end, he invites us and says, choose which way you'll live. Are you going to live according to the values of the world or according to the values of the kingdom? The part right after the beginning and the part right before the end, they also mirror each other. Jesus is explaining what does it look like to live in greater righteousness or kingdom righteousness in all these areas of life. 
in relation to the law, in relation to our personal piety, in, the re- in relation to how we handle money or how we deal with other people. And then right smack dab in the middle of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And what I think Matthew is doing is, is, uh, is saying basically any hope we have to live in the kind of righteousness that Jesus is asking us to live is totally dependent on our relationship and connection to the Father. Our, our ability to connect with him in the place of prayer, our ability to understand him as Father, to understand him as Holy, to see that we are living as a part of his kingdom, those characterize and empower our ability to live out the righteousness Jesus calls us to. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who has any hope of doing that outside of direct empowerment from God himself? So why is our prayer life such a big deal? What's revealed in prayer that's not revealed anywhere else about us? Uh, Albert Moeller says in his book, The Prayer That That Turns the World Upside Down, he says, prayer is never an isolated event. When we pray, we convey our entire theological system. Our theology is never so clearly displayed before our own eyes and before the world as in our prayers. Praying forces us to articulate our doctrines, our convictions, our theological assumptions. These aspects of our Christian life come to a unique focus in prayer because when we speak to God, we are explicitly revealing who we believe he is and who we believe we are. We, we, we expose what we believe his disposition toward us is and why he has that disposition. It's one thing to hear a person state what they believe. It's another thing to listen to him pray. And isn't that true? Can you think about your own life when you're by yourself before God in prayer? What you really think about yourself, what you really think about God comes out in that time. It's a good test of how, do I actually believe that, that God loves me? Or do I, do I believe that he secretly is sitting in condemnation over me? Uh, we uncover what our priorities are in the place of prayer as well. And if you're, if you're sitting here and thinking of your own prayer life and saying, oh no, I might be in a little bit of trouble, as I have thought before, then don't worry, you're probably in good company as well. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, you seem to understand something that we don't understand. You, you pray differently than we do. Something's missing in our prayer lives. I want you to hear today that there is actually an invitation being given to you, to you today. Jesus doesn't desire to come with a sledgehammer of condemnation and say, unless you're praying like this, you don't got it. But I think he's saying, come and experience what kind of prayer life I experience with the Father, what kind of communion I experience with the Father. Come and, and be consumed with something other than what seems most urgent in your life at the time. Let's, let's pray in the spirit of what Jesus uh, was, was saying uh, at the very beginning, that the poor in spirit are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. Let's just take a minute to pray and just acknowledge our, our weakness in this area and our desire to grow in prayer. Father, we ask today that the name of Jesus, that your own name, God, would be exalted in this place. God, we ask that we would grow and learn and be able to approach you in the way that you desire for us to approach you, God. We ask that you would help us, Lord, in our weakness to know how to pray. God, we ask that you would connect us vitally to the vine, that we would not pray from a religious duty, not pray because it's an emergency, but pray, Lord, because we know that we're connecting to you. So God, I pray that right now that you would take your word, plant it deep in our hearts, and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about the way the Christian prays? I think it reveals three things, and those are the things I want to unpack today. First, 
the Christian's prayer approaches God in both absolute security and awesome reverence. It approaches God in both absolute security and awesome reverence. Second, the Christian's prayer maintains perspective of God's grander story. And third, the Christian's prayer exemplifies a proper response to the gospel. Let's read together Matthew 6, 9 through 13. I'll be reading from the ESV, and it's also going to be put up here on the screen. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in order to fully grasp the impact of the Lord's Prayer, let's remember what came directly before it. You guys remember in in the message from last week and, and from reading that passage that Jesus exposes a couple of wrong motivations that can lead us to prayer, right? In the passage directly preceding this, Jesus first describes the person whose motivation is to be seen and affirmed by others. They love to hear themselves talk. They love to use the most grandiose language as possible, and they probably have no motivation to pray in secret. Okay, everybody point out the person in the room that that is. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I'm kidding. The second person Jesus describes is the person who prays out of anxiety. The person who prays out of uncertainty, hoping that God will finally hear him if he says the right thing. So let me, let me put it this way. The first person prays out of a, hey, look how great I am attitude. The second person prays out of a, oh no, look how lacking I am attitude. And Jesus says the believer doesn't have a focus on self at all when he comes to the place of prayer. The focus of the believer is, wow, look at God. Wow, look at the majesty of God. Look at the glory of God. Look at the fatherhood of God. Look at the kingdom God is setting up. The believer first has a Godward focus that characterizes how he prays about himself. Now, you may have heard people say that Jesus was one of the first people ever to refer to God as Father. And I think, unfortunately, that's actually not true. Um, as, as great as that sounds, actually, there's a story in the Old Testament that, that this is meant to allude us to. Uh, Jesus is meaning to allude us to the Exodus here. Because in Exodus 4.22, God calls himself the father of Israel and refers to Israel as his son. So in in echoing the exodus, Jesus actually is setting the stage for the new and complete exodus that's going to happen through his blood. The relation of the Christian to God as father, though, is distinct from any other world religion that exists. Take Islam, for instance. They believe that God is holy, that he's awesome, that he's to be revered, that he's to be submitted to. But they have specific verses saying God is not a father. And he has no son. There is not the personal connection, the safety that the believer has when he approaches God as father. That is unique. And as we know from Romans 8, the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. It's an evidence of our salvation that we cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. While I was preparing this message, there were a couple people I wanted to process concepts with. And so I texted a couple of them. Maybe it wasn't as comfortable or familiar with some of the people I was going to talk with. So I texted them, made sure it was okay that I called them, didn't want to intrude on their life. But I also wanted to talk to my dad, and I didn't need to text him first. I just, I just picked up the phone. In fact, I could have driven over to his house and opened the door and walked into his room and started talking to him. I know that whatever I need, whenever I need it, I can go and talk to my dad. Now, unfortunately, some of you didn't have that experience. You didn't have a father 
who was, who was welcoming that way. Maybe you had a father who was distant, who was calloused, who, who maybe was irritable or angry. And it's characterized or it's shaped, shifted the way that you view God. So let me just ask you this. When you come to God, do you first feel a need to repent of everything you can think of? Is that a prerequisite for, for you before you feel like you can approach him? Or do you need to apologize because you haven't been praying more? I think it's a pretty human thing for us to do, right? We, we, we're so aware of our lack, and we feel a need to atone for our own sins. Even those of us who are in Christ, we feel that tension of grace and then our responsibility, and how does that work? You know what I think is so interesting about the Lord's Prayer? Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to pray, forgive us our trespasses until the second to last request of the entire prayer. It's, it's not this thing where God's standing back with his arms folded, waiting for you to make yourself right with him before you can come. Once you have entered in through Christ, once you have been covered in his blood, you can boldly approach the throne of grace. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. When he looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. And some of us, we need to take seriously what it says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. When the son comes, the father shamelessly, in that culture, completely undignified and shameless, runs to his son and embraces him. He, didn't, he doesn't care about the trespasses of the past because his, his son has returned home. Now, of course, I'm talking about those who have recognized Jesus as Savior, those who have submitted their lives to him, who asked for forgiveness that his blood would cover them. If you're in this room and you're like, I'm not sure if I've done that, I invite you to, to come and talk to one of us today and talk about how you can make that happen. But all those who are in Christ have unfettered access to him. Now, Jesus also balances this concept of father with, uh, with his next phrase, lest we become too casual or too overly familiar with God. God as our Father absolutely gives us access and boldness to approach his throne, but it does not give us license to address God flippantly. Jesus immediately follows that statement with, hallowed be your name. Now, in English, this, this phrase seems to be a, another declaration of fact. Hey, our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Right? It seems that way to us. But actually, this is actually the first of three petitions of things that we want to see on earth as in heaven. So if you, look at the Greek, if you look at the Greek and we translate it a little more literally, this is what it would say. Our Father in heaven, let it be made holy, your name. Let it come, your kingdom. Let it be done, your will. As in heaven, so on earth. It's, it's three cries of our heart that the same way God's name is revered and is awed and is is. is exalted in heaven, that it would be the same on earth. But this is not actually the full picture either, because to us a name refers to the collection of syllables that you refer to somebody by. But in their culture, the name actually referred to a person's entire character and nature, the entire being of that person. So when we pray, let your name be hallowed, what we're actually saying is, God, would you receive in our lives and in our world the honor, the adoration, the praise, the fear, the reward that you deserve? We're not simply telling God that he has a great name. 
We're actually asking that God's whole person be exalted above every other rule and authority and that God would displace any of the idols that we've put in his place on our hearts. You see, while the Our Father introduction reassures us that we're indeed secure and can approach him boldly and securely, the Hallowed Be Thy Name immediately begins to reorient our priorities to his priorities. It, it immediately tears down the kingdom that we're building for ourselves and says, no, Lord, I want your kingdom first in my life. It tears down our agendas and puts his in place. The proper hallowing of God's name deconstructs and reconstructs our priorities so that anything else we pray aligns with his kingdom and with his will. Albert Muller says that by asking that the name of God be hallowed, Jesus is asking God to so move and act in the world that people value his glory, esteem his holiness, and treasure his character above all else. I think the believer has to hold both of these realities in view as they approach God because otherwise we're going to have an imbalance. If we have a view to God's fatherhood without the view to his holiness, we can become flippant with him. We can, become, we, we can seem to think that he exists to give me what I want and what I need. But if I, but if I have a view to God's holiness without his fatherhood, then I can, I can start to believe God is calloused. He's actually upset with me. He's, his glory is actually not for my good, which is not true, but that's how it can start to feel. But actually, his glory is what leads to our good. And when we have a view to God's fatherhood and his holiness, it puts us in the right state as we approach him in prayer. Second, we see that the Christian's prayer maintains the perspective of God's grander story. When we begin to pray primarily out of a sense of religious duty or primarily because we need something from God, we miss the point entirely that the, that the core purpose of prayer is that we would commune with God and be conformed to his kingdom and his will. In N.T. Wright's book, The Lord and His Prayer, Wright says, We come to prayer aware of our urgent needs, or at least our wants, and it's tempting for us to race through the Lord's Prayer as far as that on earth as it is in heaven stuff, so that we can then take a deep breath and say, Now look here, when it comes to daily bread, there are some, some things I simply must have. And then we go off into our shopping list of desires. It makes sense that we do that. that the most tangible things to us tend to feel the most urgent as well, right? But if we haven't made prayer a habit in our walk with the Lord, then it's possible the only time we're pushed to prayer is when we feel an urgent need. But Jesus says, no, come and first join the grander story of what's going on. Come and first join the grander story of my purposes, my kingdom, my will in the earth. Some of you may remember in a sermon that I preached about three months ago that I argued that Jesus' primary purpose, his primary calling was to proclaim and dem demonstrate and to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. That he, he came to proclaim the kingdom and establish it here. And so when we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven, we're saying, God, I recognize that the way things seem sometimes, the way things seem to be out of, out of or, order, that there's suffering, that there's evil, that there's pain, that there's brokenness all around me, there's injustice, that actually that's not the highest reality that I'm living within. Moeller says that the Lord's Prayer is actually for revolutionaries, men and women who want to see the kingdoms of this world give way to the kingdoms of our Lord, the kingdom of our Lord. I can say confidently from my own life, and maybe you can picture this in yours as well, that when, when you take time at the beginning of your day to pray, Lord, align me with your kingdom, align me with your will, remind me of who you are, and you remember that actually what I do, how I act, how I live out today is part of a kingdom. It's part of advancing that kingdom. It's part of expressing the gospel, expressing who God is. 
Today is not about me getting my needs. Today is about me living as part of that kingdom. If you take the time to do that, I promise those couple projects you're behind on at work don't seem quite as big anymore. That, that person who irritates you doesn't seem quite as irritating. It might become a little easier to love your wife and children. It might become a little easier to endure suffering because you see a picture just like Doug was talking about as he was stalling for our offering, um, that, we, that we, we live for the age to come. Doug didn't know how prophetic he was being in that moment. Um, instead of rushing into our shopping list, as Wright calls it, perhaps we need to take space at the beginning of our prayers to allow the unchanging and eternal realities of God set into our lives. God the Father loves me. Remember, God the Father loves me. Jesus has declared that the kingdom has broken in, that the, that the restoration process has begun, where God's going to bring everything back into perfection and peace. God has an eternal will that's going to be accomplished, and he's inviting me to participate in that. Once we allow our minds to be reset to what is eternal, the entire character of our prayers shifts from anxious rambling and begging God to fix stuff or give us stuff, and it shifts to simple but confident requests for what's most vital. Lastly, the Christian's prayer exemplifies proper responses to the gospel. As we enter the second half of the Lord's Prayer, you might see that there's a shift, okay? The first three requests are are magnificent, God-focused, God-shaped requests, something much grander than ourselves. And then the second three, all of a sudden, we come down into the dirt. We come down into the grit of life. And God is showing us he understands our weakness. He understands our needs. He understands the, the struggle that we go through. In fact, it's God as human who is telling us how to pray, right? God came down, became our weakness, became our messiness, right? Even in the garden, we see him wrestling with the Father and saying, God, if there's any other way, take this from me. Not my will, though, but yours be done. He's exemplifying the Lord's prayer at that moment. In fact, two of the three requests that Jesus lists here at the end are two of the foundations for the temptations he received two chapters earlier. Satan tempts Jesus with bread, the daily bread, but he says, no, I don't need that. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan also tempted Jesus with the other kingdoms of the world if Jesus would only bow to Satan. But Jesus overcame the evil one just as Jesus asked us to pray for deliverance from the evil one. But I want you to notice how these requests are tempered. It's not just free-flowing, whatever is at the top of my head, whatever. Um, it, it's actually tempered requests that are very intentional. For instance, give us our daily bread. Or forgive us just as we have also forgiven. A heart that experienced the power of the gospel, that has been transformed by the gospel, prays differently than the heart that's still ruled by self. Why do we only pray for daily bread? Why don't we pray, God, bless us with so much abundance that people of the world would just see and envy and say, wow, isn't God amazing? Why don't we pray that? There are, there are large swaths of the church that teach that that actually is what we're supposed to pray. That's what we're intended to pray. But Jesus doesn't say that here. He says to pray for daily bread. Does God ever give abundance? Absolutely. I mean, there's probably many of you in this room that are blessed with abundance, and that's not wrong. That's something God has entrusted you with. It's something he's given you. God actually gave Israel abundance, right, when they entered into the promised land. But here is the, is the warning that he gave to Israel when, he, when they were about to enter the promised land. This is in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. It's a little longer, so stay, stay with me here. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, 
When your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, and everything that you have is multiplied, then your heart would be lifted up and you'd forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You see, the gospel-transformed heart understands that I am quick to wander. I am quick to take the abundance God gives me and start building my own kingdom with it. I'm quick to forget what he's done for me. Having just our daily bread and desiring just our daily bread actually puts us in in a relationship with God that is absolutely dependent. That's where the believer desires to be, in a place of dependence on God. Whether you give me abundance or whether you give me little, I want to stay in a place of complete dependence on you. The more completely we rely on God for our physical needs, then the more completely we will be satisfied in him for our spiritual needs. As Jesus says in Matthew 4, man does not live on bread alone, but every, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The believer desires that communion and fellowship with God as much as getting the things that he needs. Also, we pray that God would forgive us as we have also forgiven. Now, uh, next week's message, which will be out on the lawn, um, is on forgiveness, so I'm not going to take too much time on this point. But I would say it's one of the key indicators of whether a heart has been truly transformed by the gospel if that person forgives or if they don't forgive. The gospel starts with our insurmountable debt that we could not pay off no matter how much we gave, no matter how long we had to give it. And so God came and gave his own life for it. A person who chooses not to forgive is showing evidence that there's a disconnect between the very heart of the gospel and the outworking of the gospel in their own life. But the person who prays, God, forgive me as I forgive others, and understands what they're saying is showing that the gospel truly has aligned their heart to God's heart. More on that next week. I'll just leave it there for a little teaser. We come to the final petition, and that's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, Our our translations probably say evil, uh, but many people say that the evil one is probably a better translation. This petition stems directly from the first three petitions, from understanding those first three petitions well. God is holy. God has a kingdom. God has a will. There's also a kingdom of darkness that is opposed to the kingdom of light. If we're not crying out for deliverance from evil, it shows that we don't understand the war and the wrestle that we are in, that our struggle is primarily against those spiritual forces, not primarily against flesh and blood, not the things I can see. Albert Muller says, these words in the Lord's Prayer express a heart of dependency and not self-sufficiency, like we were saying earlier. Once again, it's the gospel-transformed heart that understands its utter inability to do anything alone. If that heart cries out for deliverance, or it's, I'm sorry, it's the gospel-transformed heart that does cry out for deliverance because it wants so desperately to properly hallow God's name, to properly be in line with his kingdom. The person who's actually still trying to build their own kingdom is probably going to pray to be delivered from the consequences of evil. But the person who actually values God's kingdom is going to be prayed that they would be delivered completely out of evil, that they don't participate in anything that goes against God's nature and his character. All three petitions, that God would give daily bread, that God would forgive as we have forgiven, and that God would deliver us from the evil one, exemplify an understanding of the gospel and values that have been shaped by it. So, I just blazed through the Lord's Prayer, and it's probably impossible to maintain even one of the points that I've said. But, we're going to spend a little bit of time reflecting. I want to ask some questions. And worship team, you're welcome to come up at this time. 
I want to take a minute and just ask some questions. Help us to reflect on your own prayer life. How do you approach God? Think about your day. Think about your morning. Think about your prayer life or lack of prayer life. And it's okay if you have a lack of prayer life. That's okay to acknowledge that that's where you're at. How do you approach him? Do you feel able to come to him with confidence that he's pleased with you? That he's pleased to listen and respond to what you ask? Or do you find yourself praying with anxiety, with rambling, with saying many words hoping that he hears you? Or maybe you're, you're praying out of empty repetitions, out of tradition. I know that I have a, a before-the-meal prayer that I pray. Has anybody ever uh, prayed a before-the-meal prayer? Okay, it's like a million different kinds that you just, you say something so you don't feel guilty while you're eating. Okay, it's not the right kind of prayer, obviously, but that's what it can come across as. We just, we say the prayer because that's what we're supposed to do. That's, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's okay to have that prayer, but do you connect your heart with what you're saying as you're doing it? When you come to God, are you prone to start rattling off your list of needs? What would it be like for you to actually take time to first allow the awe of God's majesty to settle into your heart before you start talking to him? Whose will are you trying to accomplish through your prayers? Whose kingdom are you trying to build through your prayers? And lastly, do do your prayers exemplify that the gospel has transformed your desires? Do you find yourself dreaming about having more? Or is the prayer of your heart that God would actually give you just what you need so that your energy can be focused on connecting with him? Do you cry out for holiness or have you become complacent in the way that you live? Again, remember, Jesus is not intending to lay on us a condemning or overbearing burden by teaching us to pray this way. He's actually inviting us into a way of relating to God that's meant to bring life and joy. If we see areas of our own prayer life or lack of prayer life that don't line up with Jesus then we can be encouraged today that there is a vibrancy in prayer that he's inviting us to. I believe that a praying church is a dangerous church in a good way. You might have uh, heard the, the story I gave a few weeks ago of, of a prayer meeting I was able to uh, participate in, the unity we had there, intercession, and then God breaking in in the thing we were interceding for. I want to just read, as, as I close, a quote from R.A. Torrey, who was one of the founders of Biola University. He wrote a book called The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power. And uh, just remember, he's writing in the early 1900s. He says this, I believe the devil stands and looks at the church today. He laughs in his sleeve and he sees how its members depend upon their own scheming and their own powers of organization and skillfully devised machinery. Ha, he laughs. You you may have your costly church edifices, your $50,000 church organs or expensive worship teams, your brilliant university-bred preachers, your high-priced choirs, your gifted sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses, and your wonderful quartets, your, your immense men's Bible classes, Bible conferences, institutes, your evangelistic services, do all of these that you please. It doesn't bother me in the least. If you will only leave out of them the power of the Lord God Almighty sought and attained by the earnest, persistent, believing prayer that will not take no for an answer, But when the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who actually does pray, and above all, when he sees, whoo, amen, Holy Spirit. That was the devil. Above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at its end. I just want to ask us as Bethany Church, what kind of church are we? What kind of individual believers are we we, and what kind of gathered believers are we? 
Are we those who see that prayer comes before any fruit? Prayer comes before, after, and in the middle. It's the foundation of the spiritual battle we're fighting. And Jesus is teaching us here how to pray in maturity. Not how to pray as children, not how to, how to pray as pagans, not how to pray as guilty uh, people, but how to pray as those who have been forgiven, who have been taught, and who have been brought up in the way of Jesus. So let's stand. I'm going to close us in prayer as we head back into worship. Let's just open our spirits to be uh, encouraged by the Lord. Father, we ask that, that everything we've read here, God, that we would have faith to believe that we can, that we can engage you in this way, God. And God, I, I know that I am weak, God. I am limited in my ability to communicate the, the magnificent truths of what are said here, God. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would highlight parts of the Lord's prayer, would highlight aspects of our prayer lives, Lord, that we need to grow in. Holy Spirit, it's all useless without your work anyway, transforming us and changing us and causing your word to take root. So God, we ask as we head back into worship, Lord, that you'd speak to us, God, that you'd encourage our hearts and that you would be glorified as we grow as a church and as individuals in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.